Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. Stanford researchers this week have confirmed what anyone who has been trying to work from home virtually or corral children over a WebEx meeting have already known for some time is that Zoom fatigue is real right? So they published some research this week uh, on the feeling that you get at the end of a workday that has been strictly virtual. Like, why are you so fatigued when you've only gotten up to like fill your coffee cup, right? Like what's going on there? And they landed on a couple of reasons that, uh, actually four, I'm going to share one with you now that I I think has uh, stuck with me as I've reflected on this passage in Haggai. And uh, this particular reason was that, you know, uh, they, they pointed out that when you have a conversation over the phone or in person, it allows you to, this seems ridiculous to say, but it allows you to move around, right? You, you have the freedom of mobility, but with video conferencing, most cameras, they say, obviously have a set field of view, meaning that a person has to generally stay in the same spot. Your movement obviously is limited in a way that isn't natural. Uh, and, and again, you know, we needed research to tell us that, right? But, but that this is an unhealthy sort of way to move through the world. But, but the, the language they used struck me as I've sat with this passage in, in Haggai, that, that, that it's, it's not good to kind of have the set field of view. Uh, another way you might put it is we tend, we tend to kind of get stuck in a moment, right, that we can't get out of, the staying in the same spot. I think Haggai in our reading this morning calls our attention to this like tendency in, in the human heart to get stuck sort of moving through the world in this particular way. The, the immobility of kind of being set in our ways as humans of wanting to do things our, our own way. I mean, Haggai literally asks us to consider, to think about it. It's like, just stop, stop. You're kind of, you're stuck in this set view. Just give it a break. Give it a rest. Stop, he says, and consider your ways. We, we saw it here. We'll look at these first couple of verses with me. Um, in, in verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the, this house, the temple, this is what he's referring to, lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then again, a couple of verses later, verse 7, consider your ways. So what, what we see here is uh, well, we'll step into that in a minute, but, but, but you hear, I think the tone here is a bit of an indictment, right? He's, he, there is a sense of, of judgment and an accusation in this word, but I want to suggest to you this morning that really it's a gracious word, right? It's a word, this, this, this call, right, uh, of God through Haggai, hey, 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 let me get your attention, stop, stop, you're stuck in this view of life and the world, stop. Consider your ways. It's, it's really a gracious word of interruption, right? He's disrupting sort of the way they tend to go through life and, and trying to bring their attention back to something that's really important. And, and I, think, I think what we find is, is in this moment, right, he's acknowledging or, or calling the people, us, and, and uh, the people to whom he's writing to acknowledge that, that we are stuck in our ways. We have a limited view, right? So he says, consider, consider, stop, and think. Well, what do we hear then? As we sit with this passage, what, what do they see when, when, when they and, and we stop to consider our ways? What, what, uh, what do we hear in this indictment? And the first, I, I'm going to make a couple of observations as we sit with these first few verses. 
the first I think is that we love we love paneling, right? Uh, we're, we're playing fast and loose with some terms here, right? It doesn't mean like literally paneling, but I can tell by all of you, you know, that's a, that's a, a feature in your home that is probably your favorite, right? Maybe, maybe it is, right? That we, we love our paneled houses, right? It, in a sense, again, he's getting really specific here. We saw it introduced last week, right? The, the, the people are raising the question, is this really the time to be thinking about God's work in the world? We're doing all we can to just kind of take care of our lives, but, but here in our reading this morning, we see the, the explicit sort of expression of what that means. What has happened is they've been building their own homes and leaving the temple sort of, uh, in ruins. Just the foundation has been laid. And, uh, and again, you can go back and listen for a bit more history. But just the foundation has been laid as they've returned home. And, and they've sort of left it to the side to focus on their own lives. And if I could, I'd say that's just a, it, it, it's an indication to us that, man, we love, we love our paneled houses. Right, we love sort of blazing our, our own trail, to use different language, kind of keeping ourselves at the center. We, we like controlling what we can control and either ignoring or pushing aside or not thinking about what we can't. We like take, taking care of what we can. Last week, the language we used was, was, you know, we like to go through life kind of head down, feet on the ground, just doing what we can to sort of stay upright. And it's all over uh, the reading this morning. In verse 6, in fact, Listen, listen to what he, he kind of describes. This is how you're going through the, the world. You have sown, right, seed, like for harvest. You've sown, you eat, you drink, you clothe yourselves, and you work, you earn wages. You've sown, you eat, you drink, you work, you work. You hear it on repeat. You've sown, you eat, you drink, you work. You've sown, you eat, you drink, you work. You're, you're set in your ways. You're moving through life sort of head down, focused. You work really hard. He's saying, just stop, acknowledge that, like, notice it. Man, this is the pull of your heart to just work hard, to, to, to matter, to, to find life, to, uh, to sort of control what you can control. We love our paneled houses, right? He's, notice this, consider your ways. This is you working to prove, really, you know, you, you, you can stand. But, but there's another observation in this passage, Right? One, if the first is that, man, this is how we work. This is how we roll, right? We love our paneled houses. The second observation he makes here is that paneling is not all it's cracked up to be, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, it's just not what you think it is. And again, verse 6 is, is where we will stop to observe. We saw all the activity, all of our hard work, but look at what uh, Haggai describes, uh, God speaking through him as sort of the flip side of all that effort. You sow, he says, you sow, but you harvest little. You eat, but you're just never full. You, you drink wine, he says, but you're never like satisfied. You clothe yourselves, but you're never comfortable and warm. He says, you work so hard to earn wages, and then you put the money, it's an incredible image, you put the money in purses with holes in them. Right? It just, the money just doesn't go as, oh, which is a phrase we are hearing lots of, right? Just doesn't go as far as it used to or as far as you need it to, right? If we, if we started off with you work, you work, you work, you work, you sow, you eat, you drink, you clothe, you work, you sow, you eat. Man, here we see it just none of that sort of goes as far as we need it to. Our efforts, our work, he says, your focus, this is your view of life to just work as hard as you can and, and build the life that you've always wanted or the life that you need. But here Haggai says, man, it, it just never 
goes nearly as far as you need it to. Maybe this is a truth that you know, a reality you have felt or you know. I, I, think, I think what Haggai is saying in this moment, if, if we could play with the words a little bit, that a hole in the purse here for Haggai is really indicative of, of something much deeper, a hole in, in the heart right, of, of our lives as humanity and, and all that we, we work to do to, to prove and have significance and build security for ourselves. And Haggai says, man, you are, you are working so hard, but man, I'm telling you that paneling is not all it's cracked up to be. What's the issue in, in this passage? What is, what is he suggesting to you and me? Um, what's he saying? Well, I, I think what he is saying here pretty clearly when it comes to all of our work, and maybe this is you and me now, maybe it has been, I'm sure it is a pull for all of us. But what he's suggesting to these people is that, man, hey, listen, you guys are working so hard, which is great, whatever, but, but for you, in all of that work, God is he's kind of in the system for you, in the systems of your life. He's sort of a part of it, but he's just, he's on the margins, on the periphery. He's not kind of the center and the foundation out of which or from which you work. You might say he's, he's kind of, he's something you fit into your life rather than something you orient your life around. You hear the difference, right? And he's, this is a pull, he says, this is our limited view. It's, it's the way we are, we are inclined to go through the world. It's kind of perhaps particularly in our culture, well, you know, it's less common these days, but probably true for many of us. We, you know, God is something we kind of keep on the periphery. We want him in the system of our lives, but, but at the center, man, that is a much sort of scarier or harder place to admit. You hear it, right? God says, man, you guys through Haggai, you're, you're working, 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 building, building, building. And all the while, you know, you've relegated the temple uh, to the to the margins of your life. And, and what, so what's the fuss, right? What's all this fuss over the temple, right? I'm not about to introduce like a building campaign for the church, right? Prioritize building our church. That's, that's, not, that's not what he's driving at here. What's with the fuss over the temple here in Haggai? Well, it's clear, I think, throughout the arc of the story of Scripture, right? The temple was the, it, it, in Haggai's time, the picture of God's presence with his people. It was the place of representation. It, it, this, was, this was the mark of, of God's nearness to them, of his presence with them. And he's, he's, he's challenging them. And you guys are just moving on with your life and sort of leaving this on the edges. In a sense, what you're saying and leaving this physical building unbuilt at this time, he says. In a sense, you're saying it doesn't matter whether God is with us or not. Once we get our living conditions right and the economy is good, kind of a decent standard of living, make sure we maximize the dollar. Once we kind of get all those things in place, well then, right, then we'll have time and space for, for God. It's, it's interesting to me, right? What, what, in, in, the, in the reading here over and over again, and in this next paragraph talks about the, the temple in ruins, but there's irony, I think, all through this passage. The real ruin here is in the fact that they are working, 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 and still left un, unsatisfied. Their problem, the, the ruin in this passage is that in pushing this, this, this space where God, uh, the, the picture of his presence with them in this season and time, and pushing it to the margins, right, that in doing that, what we discover here is their problem was not a lack of goods, right? They had work, they had harvest, they had money, they had wine, they had food, they had clothes. It wasn't a lack of goods, but a lack of good, 
It didn't have a, a kind of staying, satisfying effect or power in their lives. They were always fatigued, if you will, which, which takes me back to the Stanford research. You all were wondering, what are the other three reasons? I'm going to give you one more, and you can go find the next two on your own, okay? But there was one more uh, reason that they explicitly identified uh, as a source of fatigue for those of you that are working virtually. You want to know what it was? Like, no, can we just move on? <laughs> uh, but this one, I think, helps us step into Haggai as well. But it's, it's, it's in the moment of video conferencing that the act of constantly watching video of yourself is tiring. Right, they, they, go on, they describe it like this, the researchers, right? So, so this was aspect number two, that, you know, that little box as you're always looking back, you know, you try to keep eye contact at your camera or who you're looking at, but you, you know you do it, you just you keep looking at your box, like, what do I look like? And, you know, you got to fix this here or whatever, right? Like, that pull is exhausting. They said in the real world, right, if somebody was following you around with a mirror constantly, so that while you were talking to people or making decisions or giving feedback or receiving feedback, you were always seeing yourself in the mirror, it would, it would be insane. That would be crazy. No one would ever consider doing that. The, the researchers cite, you know, studies showing that, that when we see a reflection of ourselves, we, we grow more critical of ourselves. And talk about how now, you know, we're seeing ourselves all the time, all these hours now, and it's taxing, and it's stressful. What I hear in there is that, man, it, it leads to a, a, a dissatisfaction, right? All right, do we pause? For those of you joining us online, there's a car alarm going off outside, but I don't believe it's us, so that's okay. But if you'll allow me, right, if you'll extend me a bit of grace, I, I want to suggest to you that Haggai is, is, is affirming the same point in a much more deeply human way. That the, that the effort you expend and I expend looking out for ourselves is exhausting. It, it doesn't last. It's taxing. It, it might hold us okay for a while, but we were not designed to work that way. And that, that this, this, this image of sort of, oh, you know, building our paneled houses here and, and, uh, and, and just working really hard, it's really, it's just sort of keeping ourselves at the center. It's anchoring ourselves in our own ability and effort. And Haggai, through this gracious, or God, through this gracious word, and Haggai saying, stop, stop, consider your ways, is graciously inviting you and me to just put down the mirror for just a moment. So I, I would ask you this morning, uh, listening, watching here in the room, like what, 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 um, what is the mirror in your life? Where are you sort of always kind of holding that up and, and critically kind of looking at yourself and either your inability to measure up or the things you're doing right or the things you're doing wrong? Like where, where is that space for you? It's interesting, right? Like, again, I think it's a, a little, a bit of irony that in, in the move, like in, the, in this moment when Haggai says, uh, God through him, stop, consider your ways. Uh, he, he, in a sense, like to pay attention to yourself so that you can put the mirror down and center your life on someone else. But the human heart, man, this is not how we are wired. 
or rather how we were wired, but sin has broken that design in us and, and, and we, we, we want to we hang on to that and keep ourselves at the center. So maybe I'll invite you to consider with me, like what, what does it mean? What does it look like in, in your life to, be, to kind of be always sort of holding that mirror and keeping ourselves at the center? I, I, think, I think it finds expression in all kinds of ways. I'll offer some suggestions here and maybe you find yourself in them or something similar. But I, I think it's, it's found in those moments when you're just trying to muscle your way through whatever sin or struggle might be in your life that just dogs your life and, and you, you thought you'd moved on or, or whatever that's, that's, that, that space is kind of gnaws at you perhaps from your past or the present moment and you're just trying to, I'm just going to muscle this thing down through. That's you. Work, 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 work. Like I said, stop. Stop for a moment. Consider. I think holding the mirror for you and me perhaps at times is when our faith, right, our expression of faith, our experience, perhaps in this moment it's church as we'll see in a moment, but, but our experience of God, our faith is maybe just, as we've said, a part of our system. It's on the periphery of our lives, but in that sense it's something we kind of fit into our work rather than something from which we live and work. You know, I, I think the implications of that are probably pretty clear and practical in your life and mine. I think another example of holding up a mirror is doom scrolling, right? I mean, who hasn't felt the, the, the temptation or the pull to just like, you, you, you catch a headline and before you know it, you're, I don't know, two hours in to just like, the world is right lost. And, and you're like, well, what, what, how is this keeping me at the center? Because here's what I think. All that does is affirm right, uh, and increase perhaps fear in our lack of control and feeding this need in us to, to need to be in control. And in that moment of doom scrolling, we, we just completely forget the possibility that God holds the world, that he's at work. Ourselves are at the center. We're holding a mirror. I'll tell you uh, in a moment of confession, I think I'm holding the mirror when I'm trying to control my kids out of fear, ignoring and forgetting the truth that, man, God holds them. He holds their time in his hands just as he holds mine. I, I think you're holding a mirror when all of your hard work to hold your life together right? You, you, this is a mirror, ourselves at the center, all this hard work to hold our life together maybe fills your life with loads of good things, loads of things worthy of an Instagram post, but, but leaves you at the end of the day in your most private and quiet moments, broken, and tired, and exhausted. It's holding the mirror. All of that, Haggai says, is just paneling, right? All of that. He says, give it a rest, Pause, consider your ways, and attend to another. Right? Attend to another. Attend to God's work in your life. If, if I could be so bold as to lean into the theology of elf, right? right? Make work your favorite, he says. But in this case, not your work, his, right? His work, okay, maybe elf was not the place to go. Let's go to Jesus, right? Uh, right? Well, Jesus in the New Testament speaking to us speaks to the same ache and pull in our hearts to just need to go our own way. Jesus in his own way invites us to quit fooling ourselves. Put the mirror down. Uh, 
right? All these pursuits that you chase in, in search of security and happiness and, and all of those things, they're at best unreliable and generally unfulfilling. Certainly, they don't last. They're sand, he says. They're, they're paneling. Instead, he says, seek first God's kingdom, his work, right? Attend to someone else, right? His work in the world and in your life and all these other things, he says, God will hold them too, which, which I, I think raises the question, right? So what happens in our reading this morning? What, what happens when we step into this, invita- this gracious invitation from God to, to just pause for a moment and consider our ways? When we hear kind of, again, a slightly confrontational word, right? you're just working, 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 stop, stop. I want to read, actually. It comes after what we read. This is verse 12, um, uh, the, kind of the end of the chapter here. We, Aaron didn't read this for us yet, so I, I'm gonna, there's a few names in here that you heard from last week, but just hang with me. Right? Then Zerubbabel, verse 12, the son of Shealtiel, and jo- Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, those are people who had been returned from exile, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord, right? They, they respected, they, they reoriented their lives around him. Then in verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, and the second year of Darius the king. Now, I, I want to suggest, like, what do we do with a reading like this? My hunch is the first thing you do is kind of glass over at the names and the dates, right? Like me, you just like, you sort of half pronounce them and just, you know, kind of scoot past it. The second thing I, 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 would, I would imagine our human hearts tend to do is we zero in on obey. They obeyed and they feared. Right? We, we hear those words, and our immediate takeaway is, I'm going to obey better. Right? I'm going to leave with this word I hear. God, I hear you speaking, so I am, I am gonna, I'm going to buckle down this time, and I am going to obey better. But I want to suggest to you that this movement of obeying and fearing the Lord, it, it doesn't happen out of context. There is an earlier move here. The first move in this passage is, is unspoken, but it's just to receive. It's just to open your life up to that interrupting, gracious word from God that says, look, you're working so hard. Stop. Consider your ways that the first move in this passage, before we ever get to obey and fear, is a gracious intervention unsolicited by the people. Remember, they're just doing their own thing. Yet God's speaking to them, calling, trying to woo them out of this broken tendency, this limited view, if you will, that only leads to Zoom fatigue, yes, but fatigue of a much, much deeper and more devastating kind. The first move is just to receive, right? That, 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 that somehow God in his graciousness speaks to us even when we're wayward. But, but then I think you, you see something else happen in this passage here, that when we do respond to that word, what do we find? I think amazingly, even in the ruins of our own waywardness, 
it's amazing to me that in this passage, what we discover is that God's presence is waiting for us and that his power is working in us. Right, that his presence, right, that some in the midst of, you know, we are, we are focused, we're doing our own things. But in that moment, when we hear that gracious interruption from God. What we find when we turn, right, is not like what so many think. We find God whose presence is waiting for us and whose power is working in us. We see it right here, right, verse 13. Uh, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people this message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And here again, I think we, we see a bit of irony, right? That on the surface is the temple that's in ruins, right? The foundation of the temple, right? Uh, God seems absent. He's marginalized. He's sort of pushed to the fringe of their life. They're focused. They're working. They're doing their thing. It's the temple that seems in ruins. But God is telling them, no, it's, it's your life absent my presence that is really ruinous, right? It's your life absent my presence that is empty and unsatisfying. And what we find is that when we, when, when we pause and consider our ways in that moment, what we find there is God's presence, what we have needed all along, waiting, waiting. All of this, all of this is about the promise of God, the promise of his presence with us. The temple is, is the space, the picture of that in Haggai's time, but we've been sitting over the last few weeks. We know that changes over the story of scripture, that, that becomes Jesus, God, with us in the flesh. And then later into the New Testament, his spirit with us at work in us and in the church, his presence, this picture of his presence in the world. But all of it, all of it is, is, is a, a move in this direction that really what we need in life is not to obey better, but to, to know and admit and acknowledge the presence of God with us. Not, not just his presence waiting on us, but his power working in us. I think it's a beautiful image here. The Lord, verse 14, stirred up the spirit. In this case of Zerubbabel and Joshua, repeat all the names and titles again. Isn't that fun, right? Uh, so uh, but the Lord stirring up the spirit, but not just of the leaders, of the people as well. Everyone, top to bottom, the Lord stirring them up. I think it's a word of hope, right? That the will and strength and ability to obey, even in this story in Haggai, is a work of the spirit of God in their lives. They were going to fail, right? They're going to be just as bad at obeying, right? And just trusting their own work. They'll be just as bad as they've always been. But, but because of the gracious intervention and work of God, I, 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 think, I think it is a really beautiful image that the call in this passage to obey and to fear the Lord, that that call is embedded deeply between the promise that God and his grace is going to say the first word to us and that on the other side of it, he is waiting already uh, with his presence to fill us with his power. That all of our obedience, right? That all of our obedience, all of our work is nestled deeply within his work, his gracious word at the start and his presence and power at the end. I'm going to leave you with just a, a quick uh, reflection I, I heard from a father. I was reading this week, actually, in uh, a, a space that uh, I go to at times just to remind me of God's grace in my own life and my need for it. And this was a father recounting a conversation he had had with, with his seven-year-old daughter when she discovered that he had a, a glass eye. 
and uh, so they were driving, and and uh, she, you know, just her mind was blown. She's like, "You mean you can't see anything out of that eye?" He's like, "Yep, yeah, nope, nothing." You know, just you can imagine seven year old coming to terms with that truth, and you can't see anything at all, really. You can't see anything at at all. He's like, "No, honey, I I can't see anything." And then she said, "But what if you really tried? But what if you really?" tried? What if you just tried harder? What if you just obeyed better? He goes on to reflect, right, that he heard in that moment the gospel, right, that that not all problems in life can be fixed just by trying harder. That that's a bit of, in this broken sinful state, what makes us human, that trying harder doesn't change our bent to always sort of build our own houses. Trying harder doesn't change the truth that we are dead set on paneling, right? But God in his grace meets us, meets us in those ruins and gives us life. It's, it's, it's I think, important to remember, we talk about prayer and fasting. We're not doing this to say, look, God, I'm going to obey better. No, it's, it's instead a moment to kind of pause and confess and acknowledge my effort and work will never be enough. I, I cannot just work harder out of this. Instead, I consider my ways. The truth that the problem, my relationship to God is much worse than I think. That trying harder is not the answer I need. Uh, I need the help of someone else. It's why I need, above everything else, to know Jesus. It's why we're going to pray that as a church together this week, that you would know him, that our community would, would know him. Because when we consider our ways, as Haggai tells us here, discover the gospel truth, we, we find that our hope lies not in our own strength, but in the God who first sends a gracious word to you and then meets you with his presence his power. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.